All right, let's go Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. If you uh, don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Um, I'm realizing now that I failed to put the Bibles back under the seats, but if you want one, I know where to find them. So uh, if you don't own a Bible of your own, uh, don't have one that you could call yours, uh, we would love to give you one. We have really cool... uh, uh, hardback ones that we like to give away. And we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among all the really awesome, important things that God uses his word for is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in, about, and around your life to be shaped by that knowing him. And so if uh, you don't have a copy of, uh, of the scriptures that you can call yours, we can fix that today. Um, so we have made it now to... Uh, to what is the last week of focusing on the book of Jonah. We got six weeks out of a letter that should take only about five minutes to read. So God has been good to us. Um, but if, in case you just haven't been here, maybe you're new here, maybe uh, you just, I don't know, you just forgot or whatever. Uh, in case you haven't been here, uh, Jonah is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, somewhere between seven and 800-ish B.C. The, the timeline there is a little uh, sketchy because of the, the king he was... Rain, he was under rain for a long time. Uh, but his life is playing out um, during a time period where the people of God don't really act like the people of God. Uh, there's a lot of sin in the camp. There's a lot of open idolatry going on. There, it's an especially sinful time period in Israel's history. But despite their sin, despite the fact that they are an absolute dumpster fire of sin, all right, despite all that, God is incredibly good to them. He blesses them in an absolutely massive way. Um, and so uh, the, the economy is strong. The borders are strong and growing. Like everybody points to Israel and goes, yeah, God's good to them. In spite of their sin. And Jonah is sitting in the middle of it all. He sits in the king's court as the mouthpiece of the Lord during this time period. He, he's whispering into this wicked king's ear. Yeah, yeah, God wants good for you. He's going to give you this. He's going to give you that, and don't worry, don't worry. God's, God's got this. He wants to bless us. What a, what a job, right? Who wants that job? Comes with perks, right? But then one day, God calls Jonah to get up and head to the incredibly pagan city of Nineveh. The population is blowing up in Nineveh as well, and they're, they seem, as far as we can tell historically, they seem to be growing pretty quickly in brutality as well. Uh, they're not as brutal as they will, will one day become. Uh, the Assyrian Empire is just kind of this small thing that's you know, becoming a big deal, and they will eventually become one of the most, most ruthless empires ever. Uh, but during this time period, they're just kind of getting their feet wet in the brutality. But it's not good. It's not a good thing at all. Uh, and so God says, tells Jonah, hey, listen, I'm noticing that the people of Nineveh are growing in their weakness. Their wickedness has come up before me. So I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to tell them what I tell you to tell them. And Jonah ain't having it. So while God's got a job for Jonah, Jonah doesn't want anything to do with that job, and so what does he do? He runs the other direction, right? You're familiar with the story. He gets on a ship uh, to try to sail across the Mediterranean, all in an attempt to, quote, flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, how many of you are dumb enough to believe that that can happen? You can't run from God like that. How does it go? It goes very, very poorly. You can't flee from the presence of the Lord. You can pretend, you can close your eyes and put your fingers in your ears, but the moment you open your eyes and unstop your ears, God's there. He's there. 
He'll be waiting on you whenever you arrive at wherever you think he's not. God wants good for Jonah. And so as Jonah is attempting to run away, instead of just showing up where Jonah ends up, God stops Jonah. He hurls a giant windstorm upon the waters and threatens to break up the boat and all the professional sailors on the boat are terrified and they're hooking cargo overboard. They, they think they're about to die. And God sent a terrible storm for Jonah's good. And, and let's be honest, that, that kind of rubs up against most people's idea of what good things from God's hand are, right? God, God doesn't send the storm. God sends the good things. You know, sometimes God sends the storm. And sometimes that storm is absolutely terrifying. And it's all for our good. But hey, like Jonah doesn't really listen. He only serves to harden Jonah further. But in the meantime, all the pagan sailors on board this ship, they, they, they meet God. And so that's cool, I guess. Jonah is hurled overboard. He's about to drown. And what does God do? God rescues him, right? How does God rescue him? Fish snack. God appointed a giant fish to swallow Jonah whole and then hang on to him for a few days. But like, is, is that even possible? Like, like, how does that make sense? Like, like, are you going to accuse God of not being able to pull that off? Like, that's the question we got to answer, right? Before we answer the, is God allowed to? And is God able to? We need to first answer the question, can God do what he wants to do? Yes or no? And if the answer is yes, then all those other questions don't really matter. He'll figure it out, right? And so Jonah is rescued from certain death by being swallowed by a fish. And then, and then all of chapter 2 is spent with Jonah inside said fish belly, celebrating that God has already rescued him. He, he kind of writes a prayer, a psalm of thanksgiving. But, but while Jonah says a bunch of really, really, really great stuff about God's faithfulness while he's in the belly of the fish, we never really see him mention anything in the way of repentance. There's no, I'm sorry. There's no, I was wrong, God. Let me try again on that one. It's just, thank you for saving me. I expect to get to do all the things that you've blessed me with before. So God... We're told at the end of chapter 2, has the fish vomit Jonah out on dry land. What a picture, right? Fun little children's Bible story. And in that moment, God tells him all over again, hey, get your tail to Nineveh. I gave you a job to do, and you're going to do it. Jonah reluctantly complies this time, if for no other reason, but because he understands what happens when he runs the other way. And so reluctantly, he heads off to Nineveh, and we're told that he covers about a third of the ground that's required to cover in order to do the job faithfully. And his message is just as lazy. He says, in 40 days, God's going to destroy all of you. It's coming. Get ready for it. Despite their half-hearted preacher, though, despite the laziness and the attitude that comes along with Jonah's message. God uses that message for his purposes, and he calls Nineveh to a true repentance. And they call for a fast. They, they swap out their comfortable clothes for sackcloth. We even see that the king sits on a pile of ashes. That's destitute. It's a dark day. 
And I get it. Those, those kind of things kind of appear weird to us in our culture. Like how many of y'all sat on ashes Thursday? Like it's not something we do in our culture. Uh, and so those were just the culturally appropriate ways in, in their own world of outwardly showing an internal reality uh, of contrition before the Lord. They were signs of mourning for the ancient Near East. And so if you're asking, well, well who died then? And the answer is that they did to themselves. That's what true repentance is. It's a dying to yourself, um, a laying down of your right to control at the feet of the one who is actually in control of things. I give up. It's on you now. That's all repentance ever is. And if there's some cultural things that, that flesh that out on an external way of, that, that kind of pictures the internal reality, then that's a good thing too, Right? Nineveh repented internally, and they showed that repentance through the appropriate cultural means. And so we ended our time last week with, with God relenting from the disaster that he was about to bring upon the city of Nineveh. He saw their repentance, and we're told that he stayed his hand. So anybody willing to guess how Jonah felt about all this? Like, like who's going with, he was happy about it. Threw a party, got on Twitter and celebrated it. Well, we're told about that reaction in chapter 4, verse 1. So look at it with me. Whole town's repenting, and look what Jonah does. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was what? So instead of joy, Jonah's reaction is anger. Seems appropriate, right? Seems like the correct thing. But Jonah's not just angry, though. He's unabashedly angry right now. He doesn't care if the whole world knows it. He wants everybody to know just how angry he is. Why? Well, because God is showing kindness to someone that Jonah doesn't believe deserves it. Period. Seem like a reasonable thing for him to be angry about? We all going with this? Or are we all in agreement here that Jonah's little reaction is pure nonsense? Let it be known that sin doesn't just make you stupid. We've seen that over and over again throughout the story of Jonah. Sin also makes you unbearable. It also makes you unbearable. It skews the values of your heart towards the wrong things always. Jonah gets mad at something that should explode with celebration out of him. He's furious about it. In, in response to, to watching Nineveh repent of their sin and God relenting from his anger towards Nineveh, Jonah decides to throw just a full-on temper tantrum right now. Like if you've had kids, you're familiar with the scene, right? We had it happen in a store last week. Not a fan. Stomping the foot, holding the breath. You get it. You've lived it. The knee-jerk reaction that we see from Jonah here is childish. That's the only way to describe it. It's childish. And so the immediate and obvious next question down the line is, what in the world produced this reaction? Where's this coming from? Well, there's something really important, I think, going on in the Hebrew 
That's a lot harder to read in the English translation. Over the last two verses, uh, the, the last verse of chapter 3 and now into the first verse of chapter 4, there's one Hebrew word that's been translated three different ways in the English. It's the word ra'ah. Ra'ah. If you look back at uh, verse 10, you'll see that it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, their ra'ah, God relented of the disaster, Ra, that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So in one way, it's translated as, as evil, and the next is translated as disaster, even, even in the same verse, in verse 10. So is that allowed? Like, like does that make sense? I thought words were just kind of words. Well, no, that's actually the right way to translate it. Um, it's okay to translate it that way. Ra has kind of a range of, of meanings and, and includes both evil and disaster. And so when it's used of the pagan peoples, it's evil. And when it's used of God, it's, it's this sense of, of, of injury or disaster that it's translated there. It includes the idea of bringing justice to something. But then in the very next piece of the story, chapter 4, verse 1, we see that Jonah is angry. Ra'ah. Meaning, Jonah watched God set down his righteous anger, and Jonah decided in that moment that that wasn't good enough. That's, that's just not a sufficient answer for me. And so Jonah decided to pick up the ra'ah picked up an unrighteous anger. See, Jonah's sense of justice has been pricked here. He doesn't like the scene. In his mind, God cannot be trusted to do what Jonah thinks is the right thing to do in this moment. And so we see that reality fleshed out even more clearly in verse 2. He says this, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So why can't God be trusted to do what Jonah thinks is right? It's because of, Jonah, because of who Jonah believes God to be. Right? This isn't a matter of ability. Jonah seems to believe that God doesn't have the fortitude of character to do what Jonah thinks God ought to do in this moment. He doesn't like who God is. These, these people, they deserve your, your wrath, and I knew it. I just knew that you'd be kind to them, God. I just knew that you would be slow to anger. Why can't you do what everybody else around here thinks that you ought to do to these people? That's the tone here. That's the tone here. I tried to tell you back in Israel, I tried to tell you before I ran off to Tarshish, you're abounding in steadfast love. It doesn't belong to them. And all the emotionally mature people in the room right now are rightly aghast at such a childish outburst, right? What, what, where is this coming from? Who does he think he is? Here's the deal, though. All the spiritually mature people in the room feel the sting of words that sound all too familiar. If you're honest, and I mean really honest before the Lord, you've thought some of the exact same things that Jonah is thinking now. I'll go ahead and confess, I have. 
I know I have. I remember those moments as you've watched the, the one that you would call the enemy receive a good thing from the hand of the Lord. Jonah's just saying the quiet part out loud. That's all he's doing. Doesn't make him right, doesn't make him mature. What it does, though, is make him braver than a lot of us. It also, I think, links us a lot closer to Jonah than we're comfortable with. In this story, we are Jonah. So, pop quiz. Did Jonah misrepresent God here? Yes or no? Did he say something false? Did Jonah paint a, a wrong or incorrect picture of God's character? The answer is absolutely not. Not, not in the least. In fact, Jonah is quoting something that God said about himself back in the days of Moses, Exodus 34. Moses is, if you remember the story, Moses is told to, to, to go back up Mount Sinai with fresh stone tablets because he broke the first two. You remember why he broke the first two? The golden calf, right? He comes down the hill with the law. God has written it for him. And he's like, hey guys, I got the law from God. And what does he find there? The Israelites have convinced Aaron to melt down all their gold, make a golden calf, and they're now they're all throwing a party and worshiping it. What a fun day for Israel. And so what does Moses do? Makes a scene, right? Throws them on the ground. And then the back and forth between Moses and God, when they're figuring out if God ought to just wipe them all out and start over, they're, when they're figuring out if God should just wreck everybody and start from scratch, God calls Moses back up the mountain with fresh tablets because he's going to give him the law again. We're going to do this. We're going to get this right. And in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, we're told that the Lord says this, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so one of the darkest moments in Israel's history, a story that, that exists because of the extreme mercy and grace of God upon a people that don't have any business knowing him. God chooses to describe himself in this way. He chooses to go with steadfast love in spite of justice. In this Exodus 34 language, it's picked up and celebrated over and over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. For instance, uh, for instance, in Numbers 14, in what could maybe arguably be described as, as uh, the second darkest day during the wilderness wanderings, uh, some people have openly rebelled against Moses. They're, they're trying to overthrow him, and, and so God threatens to kill everybody again. And they deserve it. We'll just start over with you, Moses. And what happens in the story? Moses quotes these very words back to God. He says, God, uh, you're the God of steadfast love. Don't do this. If, if, if not for these people, I know they don't deserve it, but if, if not for these people, but for the sake of the glory of your steadfast love, God, don't do this. Don't spare them because of them. Spare them because of who you are. It was not just the wilderness wanderings. This line is trumpeted about a bajillion times in the Psalms. Psalm 34, Psalm 86, Psalm 103, Psalm 145, some of my favorites. And so by the time you get to Jonah, 
By the time you get to Jonah's day, this is not some half-baked idea about who God might be. It's not some working theory. God has buried the reality of his steadfast love deep into the consciences of his people over and over and over again. This is who your God is. This is who I am. Jonah knows exactly what God's steadfast love is like. Israel exists as a nation because of God's steadfast love. In fact, uh, Jonah's already alluded to this exact character trait of God. Back in chapter 2, verse 8, when he's in the fish belly, Jonah's harping on Israel's uh, running away from, from God. He specifically mentions that they're running away from his steadfast love. Jonah knows exactly who God is. He knows exactly who he is. He doesn't misrepresent God at all. He uses God's own words about himself. Jonah tells God verbatim that he ran away, not because he's scared of the Assyrians and not because the responsibility is somehow too much for him and he's scared of how it might go. No, no, no. Jonah ran away because he thinks that God is too weak towards those Jonah thinks deserve his wrath. He wasn't going to be party to it. Wasn't going to help God be kind to these people. You kidding me? You ever found yourself in a place where you didn't care one bit what God would have you do? You walked in the door already believing that God was wrong. He, he, he doesn't see the situation like, I see the situation. Ever been in a moment where you knew God's answer, but you didn't like it, so you distanced yourself as far as you possibly could from obedience? I know that sounds incredibly brazen when said out loud like that, but... Just another one of those quiet things said out loud moments. If you're honest, you've been there. I don't know, maybe you're even there this week. Jonah made a career off of the steadfast love of God. God blessed Israel in spite of Israel's wickedness. And Jonah got to be the guy, the guy, doling out God's blessing in the middle of it. Jonah quickly and rightly celebrated God's steadfast love as he was rescued from certain death in the water. And he confidently looked forward to all that God was going to continue to bless him in the future when he finally returned to the temple, right? But literally the entire story of Jonah hinges on Jonah being angry with God that he would act consistently with his character and would extend that same steadfast love to some wicked other. That's why we're here right now. The story of Jonah exists not because Jonah has doubts that God is steadfast in his love, but because Jonah doesn't want steadfast love being extended to those he would despise. So now that the cat is out of the bag, now that the quiet thing has been said, what does Jonah do? Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah takes his frustration and he runs all the way to the end zone with it, doesn't he? Right? 
Now, it's incumbent upon us this morning to draw a clear distinction between what we see here in the book of Jonah and what often, I think, gets falsely lumped into the same category. Uh, There are people in our world with very real dark things in their hearts, and those dark things have led them to wrongly believe and consider that death is the answer to their struggles that they're facing. And sometimes those things are psychiatric problems, and sometimes those things are chemical imbalances, and sometimes I'm convinced those things are spiritual, demonic things that we've got to wrestle with and pray against, whichever one of those it is or combination of those it is, those people need an incredibly patient, sacrificial love from us, right? That's exactly what they need. They need need special medical intervention even. They need those that are close to them to rush to their side and get them the help that they need. But that is not in any way, shape, or form what we see coming out of Jonah here. Jonah doesn't have a psychiatric problem. He's mad that he's not getting what he wants. Period. And so he tells God that he would rather die than see God be gracious to his enemy. I I just knew, I knew you didn't have it in him to punish them like I want you to punish them. So go ahead and kill me now. I just can't face it anymore. I don't want to be here if you're going to be like that. This is a selfish, selfish ultimatum from a prophet who thinks that he's smarter and more just than God is. You're wrong. I think you know you're wrong, but I can't stop you, so just take me out. I don't want to be here. We've asked this question multiple times now over the course of this series, but it's an appropriate question here as much as anywhere else. If you're sitting in God's seat in this moment, how do you respond to Jonah? How do you respond to Jonah? That's the question that deserves to be asked. And we see God's response in verse 4. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? It's a, a simple question, but that question we all know is loaded with depth, right? Sometimes... Sometimes the best course of action with somebody who's being absolutely ridiculous is to calmly ask them a question that deals a death blow to the foundation of their ridiculousness. Just calls it what it is. Is this really who you want to be? Is that really the best response for this moment? Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? what, What good do you get out of this? It's not merely a simple question. Think of the one who's asking it. Like, think of the positional difference between God and Jonah. <laughs> who does Jonah think he is right now? Like, seriously, who does Jonah think that he is? Jonah throws a fit in the middle of God saving some people. He accuses God of wrongdoing, not by action, but because of his character. All for what? Because God is extending compassion to someone else in addition to all of the incredibly compassionate things that God has already extended to Jonah. Jonah deserves a lightning bolt in this moment. Boom, we're done with the problem. Got to be honest, if I'm in God's seat, I keep the lightning bolts close. But instead of the lightning bolt, God gives Jonah a question. 
What do you gain by being angry right now? Does it do you well? Talk about restraint. And that's what this is, right? This is a gracious restraint. God, God shows an incredible incredible patience towards Jonah. There's not a person in this room, myself especially, that would be as slow to anger as God is in this moment. doesn't matter how patient you believe you are. doesn't matter what kind of training and dealing with difficult people you think you have. No one is this slow to anger. No one. You don't have it in you, and I know I don't. The compassion that God shows to Jonah here is astounding. It's astonishing. But just like we saw with rock bottom in chapter 2, compassionate restraint is not enough to, to work change and repentance in someone's heart either. Jonah's stubbornness hasn't cracked quite yet, and so look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So what does Jonah do? He runs off. He's in the middle of a city that, where everybody is actively repenting of their sin and calling on the Lord to, to save them. And instead of rejoicing over that reality, he's getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And so, hey, as a general rule in life, if other people's coming to know God fills you with anger, you're the bad guy in the story. Are we all in agreement about that? You ever find yourself in this situation, just go ahead and take that as a clear sign that you ought to repent right then and there. Jonah doesn't get it yet, though. It's not what Jonah does. He does what most people having a pity party do in this situation. He decides that he's got to get out of there. He runs away. He exits town. He finds a place to sit down and watch it all play out from a distance. He doesn't want to be in the presence of the good things going on, and so he'd rather sulk. Wait for God to change his mind. Builds a booth to shade himself a little bit from the sun. And if you're confused by that, don't think booth like in a restaurant. Think booth like in a, at a fair, right? Um, in Jonah's day, it would have been a really quick lean-to kind of shelter that gave a little bit of shelter from the sun. Nothing impressive at all. And so, in fact, in verse 6, we learn that it's not even doing a good job of shading him because God comes behind him and causes a plant to grow up and give him even more shade. What kind of plant? I don't know. A lot of people have spent a lot of time, like seriously, if you go get a commentary for the book of Jonah, chapters will be devoted to what kind of plant was it? I don't know. Some say it's like an ivy thing. Some say it's like a type of gourd. I don't, I don't care. I don't care. Those people that argue over that, they seem to forget. Like, we're in the middle of a story where God threw a storm at Jonah and caused him to be swallowed by a fish and then vomited up three days later. It doesn't matter what kind of plant. I don't think we have to worry about what type of plant it is. The point is that God appointed it. It's God's plant. He put it there. He'll do with it what he wants. While Jonah is pouting just outside the city, hoping that God will change his mind and decide to go Sodom and Gomorrah on this town. 
What's God doing? While Jonah pouts, what is God doing? He's continuing to pursue Jonah. And he gives him a gentle gift to comfort him. Comfort him from what? Because it's more than just shade. What does it say at the end of verse 6? To save him from his what? His discomfort, right? That word discomfort there? Hebrew. Ra. Fourth time we've had that word. To comfort him from his evil anger, to assuage him. That, that tells us that the plan is more than just a little sun protection. It's also about to be a giant object lesson, isn't it? So not only does God appoint the plant to grow in verse 6, but look what happens in verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. So just like God appointed the fish and just like God appointed the plant, we're also told that God appointed a worm. What kind of worm? Still don't care. Appointed a worm to eat the plant. And then he appointed a scorcher of a day to bake Jonah a little bit. All from the gracious hand of the Lord. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that God's patient pursuit of us is not the same thing as him ignoring our nonsense. Jonah gets beat up a little bit here. All for Jonah's good. God is still actively humbling him. But just like his humiliating exit from the fish seemed to kind of further harden him, what effect does the sunburn end up having? The end of verse 8. We're told that Jonah's response is to double down, right? He'd still rather die than repent. What a moron. But God has positioned things in the most appropriate way. And the God who is sovereign over where Jonah sat down, and sovereign over the plant, and sovereign over the worm, and sovereign over the sun, God gets ready to pull the trigger on his giant object lesson. In verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Do you, uh, do, do, you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So God asked a similar question to the one he asked back in verse 4, right? But this time there's just a little bit of an adjustment. He says, Do you do well to be angry about what? About the plant, right? But while Jonah refused to answer the first time, oh, now he's got an answer. He's got an answer. Yeah, I'm angry. You bet I'm angry. And his tone here seems to paint the picture that he obviously should be angry. And so should everybody else who knows what's going on right now. Why? Well, because the plant served a purpose for him. It's his plant. It sprouted up and did so many really good things, all to be cut down so quickly. Oh, poor pitiful plant. Hey, everybody. Jonah is finally expressing concern over something perishing. 
at the end of the book. He didn't care when it was the sailors who were in danger. He didn't care when it was the people of Nineveh who were in danger. But gosh darn it, he seems to care a lot when it's a weed that sprouted up overnight. Sprouted up to help him. And anybody reading Jonah's story right now ought to see the glaring flaw in Jonah's logic, right? What is it? God asks the obvious next question. If, if the weed that doesn't actually matter, something that's here one day and then thrown into the fire the next, just gone the next, if that can cause this kind of reaction in you, Jonah, what concern should I have for a giant city full of people, huh? These people are created in my image, Jonah. They're created to, to know me and walk in relationship with me. Right now, they don't have the law, and so morally speaking, they don't know their left hand from the right. They don't have a clue. Tell me, Jonah, how exactly should I feel about all of these people, huh? Tell me, oh, wise and benevolent ethicist of the plant kingdom, how should I feel about these 120,000 people? And listen, if you can't have compassion on my image bears, maybe at least you can have some compassion on the cows. Find it in the depths of your creature-loving heart to love the cows, at least. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the cliffhanger ending of the book of Jonah. There is no Jonah Part 2 electric boogaloo. The story cuts off right there. That's it. Jonah doesn't answer the question, at least we're not recorded one. Jonah doesn't answer the question. We don't learn anything at all from the text about whether Jonah finally comes to his senses or if he is further hardened by this little object lesson that he's been like dealing with over and over throughout the story. Right? Right? And so we never see Jonah repent. We never see it. Oh, but wait a second, Stephen. You've been saying for a whole series now that God's eventually going to get him there. I remember you saying that. I remember saying that. What happened? I mean, we see God's success in Nineveh, but what about, what about Jonah? And I am convinced, thoroughly convinced, that God eventually brought Jonah to true repentance. I just don't think it happened before the story came to an end. You answer the did Jonah ever repent question by answering a different question. Who wrote the book of Jonah? Either, either somebody got wind of everything that happened to Jonah and then didn't paint Jonah in a very nice way when they told the story. Or Jonah's telling his own story. And he can openly share the countless times that he was a moron before the Lord. He can press into the embarrassment of his rebellion and his ungracious heart. Church, I think Jonah eventually came home. He repented of his sin. And now he wants others to come to the same conclusion that even though it took him a while, he finally came to. Hopefully a much faster than he got there. See, asking a question at the end of a story is an intentional literary device that forces the reader to answer the question. So reader, 
Should not God have pity? Yes or no? Should not God have pity? Is God allowed to show his boundless compassion to whoever he wants to show it to? If he, if he calls you and I to be messengers of that boundless compassion, even to the very last person that we think deserves it, what should our response be? That's the question we've got to answer. There are obvious questions. No one is dumb enough to give the wrong answer. But this is where Jonah's story is incredibly useful to press the point. Jonah can sit on his cushion in the king's court all he wants to, whispering good news of God's blessing into the ear of a sinful king. He can reap all the benefits of God's blessings, boundless compassion towards God's people. But Jonah doesn't actually believe in God's boundless compassion until God takes him out to the woodshed just outside of Nineveh. He doesn't actually trust it. He can say kind things about it, but he doesn't believe it yet until God shows off with it. He fights against it with everything in him up until that point. Jonah's lip service is not enough. It's not enough. Even his begrudging obedience is not enough. God's call on Jonah's life was to truly see his enemies as objects of God's boundless compassion in the same exact way that Jonah was already a recipient of God's boundless compassion. A continued recipient of God's boundless compassion. So what do we do with this, right? How do we shut down the book of Jonah, especially with a cliffhanger ending? What response can we have to that, that, that what's response is expected of us by God's word, we can say. If you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, the response has been spelled out for us pretty clearly, right? We answer the question. We've got to answer God's question to Jonah, the question extended to, to Jonah's audience, not with mere assent, but with the kind of action that proves that we actually believe it to be true. I mean, pick the person in your life right now that seems the farthest away from the Lord. That guy desperately needs to know Jesus. So what are we going to do about it? To be clear, Jonah could not save Nineveh. That wasn't his job, but compassionate obedience was his job. And when God finally got even begrudging obedience out of Jonah, God still used it for his glory. He accomplished every one of his purposes, right? And so in, in a moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time to try to put action to whatever God's stirring in your heart. And I don't know what that means for you. I wish I had a do this and do that kind of question for you. What I do know is that God put somebody in your heart and your life that you probably think is beyond the reach of God's hand. Or maybe you think that it doesn't deserve God's grace at all. And the answer is that they don't. But God's good like that. Just like he extended it to you in the undeserving way he extends to the other. So go do something with it. What if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Can, can you respond to God's word? Yeah, you can. It's by, by meeting Jesus. Listen, God used a half-hearted preacher to call Nineveh to himself. Maybe this morning he'll use one with a really weird accent. Right? So 
The Bible teaches that all people, by default, are separated from God relationally because of their sin, that we are owed His wrath as the just and right, appropriate punishment for our sin. And and if that's where the story ended, we'd all be in a lot of trouble, right? I know I'd be. The Bible also teaches that God made a way where there was no way. The eternal Son of God, Jesus, He put on flesh and He dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are are capable of living. He died on the cross as a full and final payment for your sin, and He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of His perfect and sufficient righteousness. And as the one who conquered both sin and death, he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And listen, you can do that today. I'd love to be helpful to you. You don't need me, but I'm here. We can talk about it. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. I'll be down front if you want somebody to talk to. But whoever you are, however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together as a church family right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of Jonah. Thank you for being a God who's not limited to getting people where people where you want them to be, even within the episode. You're not tidy like that, but you are faithful. The cliffhanger doesn't bother you. You're playing the long game, even if we cut the story short. So, Father, for those of us in here who, who know you, would you convict us of sin and draw us closer to yourself? I'll, I'll be honest, there's things in my heart and life that sometimes I limit myself to begrudging obedience. Rather than the seas you see. And it's usually because I think I'm smarter than you or I think I'm more just than you or understand the situation better than you and couldn't be more wrong. But you loved Jonah beyond just his disobedience and beyond just his rebellion and even into his pettiness and childishness. We need the same kind of love. I can be just as childish sometimes. Thank you for being who you are. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are good. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see your goodness? Would you open ears to hear your call? We love you. Thank you for sending your son. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.